0: how do you like my video opening Last night and this morning at the early service, I told a joke at the beginning that nobody laughed last night and nobody laughed this morning, so you are not going to get the joke today because it's just not that good. We're just going to jump right into it. I'm not even going to do it unless you promise to laugh to build myself confident. No, I don't want to put you through that. It just wasn't that funny. Uh, No, you don't want to hear it. Well, the joke was, I said, you know... (laughs) Teaching on marriage on the weekend, you know, is sometimes people don't understand, why would you do a series on marriage? Because isn't the goal of preaching for people to be able to apply the message immediately before they get to their car in the parking lot? For some people, especially the teenagers in our church, that would be a little bit rash. See, again, nobody laughed. It's just, the timing is terrible. I just, I can't pull it off. So, I can't believe you guys made me do that and didn't even give me the courtesy laugh. Anyways, let's get into marriage for the day. Uh, you know, starting a series on marriage, it would have been very easy to pick up the, the, the newest, most popular Christian book on marriage. And a lot of them are great, but the only problem is oftentimes when you get a great book on marriage, the material goes out of date every 10 years because cultures change, society changes, generations change, things change. So what I want to do with this series is give you the ability to look at marriage through the lens of Scripture. Because there's one book that's been tried and true for hundreds of years by thousands of people around the world that has never been found wanting, and that's the Bible. It's the most relevant book. It is timeless in nature, and it gives you everything you need to know to look at life through the lens of Scripture and have a great marriage. And the Bible is all about marriage. It begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, and it ends with the marriage and revelations with the bride of Christ. The Bible is about marriage. And what I want you to understand is marriage is not a human invention. You no, know, well, it wasn't something that some you know people around the Bronze Age, sitting around a campfire, got together and decided. Let's let's get married and develop a human ceremony called marriage. Marriage was a divine institution. See, there's a lot of institutions that we humans celebrate. We have graduations, we have birthdays. There's libraries, art galleries, nonprofits, charities. A lot of great institutions that the Bible doesn't talk about because the Bible doesn't re- regulate them. Because the Bible regulates what God institutes, and God didn't institute all those great human institutions, but what God did institute were a couple human institutions that we have today, marriage and the church. God personally created them. And what you need to understand about marriage is it wasn't a human invention to make you happy, it was a God institution to sanctify you. And when you begin to look at marriage through the lens of Scripture, it begins to open up to actually how it was designed. See, the thing is, if you get a new car, a hybrid or whatever, it's a car you've never had before, and something goes wrong, you go to the owner's manual to figure out what to do. Well, this Bible is the owner's manual for marriage because marriage is not something humans created, but it's something that God God himself instituted. And so the way to get the most out of your marriage is to look at the creator, figure out how he designed it. And do it. So the reason we want to do a series on marriage on the weekends is is a couple reasons. Well, you know, one, because it's in the Bible and anything in the Bible we should study. One of the most dangerous things you can do as a follower of Christ is decide to look for the relevant parts of the Bible. What are the parts of the Bible that apply to me? Because the reality is, how do you know it's relevant for your life? The Bible's wiser than you. You know, you should just take the Bible in its entirety and study it in its entirety because you have no idea really what the relevant parts of the Bible are for you. Another reason we talk about marriage is because there's a lot of people who aren't married who plan on getting married one day. And for them, we want them to begin to look at marriage through the lens of Scripture so that they know what they're getting into, know how to get the most out of it, and go about it God's way so that it works. There's some people that, that are here that have been through divorces in their life. And so we look at marriage because, unfortunately for them, some of them have even more messed up perception of what marriage is because of the divorce they've been through. How I many know? You know, it can really mess you up. I we're doing premarital counseling with a couple that got married recently in our church, and. One of the things that, you know, they came in, they were looking at marriage as a formality because they had both gone through divorces in their past. And for them, it was just a formality. We just need to go through this. It's a formality. We need to get married for our family and friends. And I had to stop them and say, wait a second. Marriage is not a formality. The beauty of God and his grace is he can take something that has been broken. He can take something that has a messed up past, show off his grace and give an absolutely incredible marriage to you. You have the ability to have one of the most beautiful marriages ever by allowing God to show off his grace through your life. See, to have a beautiful marriage has nothing to do with having a perfect past. A beautiful marriage, whether you've been faithfully married to the same person for 50 years or whether you've had a broken past, you get a beautiful marriage one way through the grace of God. And that's it. So it doesn't matter what your past looks like. All that matters is how much grace are you allowing into your life. And we're going to look at that in a moment as we dig in. And then a lot of people here are married and you can apply this message in the most obvious ways. So let's jump into the, uh, what they call the locus classicus text on marriage from ancient writings, Ephesians chapter 5. And let's dig into verse 21, and we're going to read through verse 33 this morning as we look at the principles of marriage, how God designed it, how it works, and how to look at it through the lens of Scripture. Verse 21, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Let me just stop and point out something. Notice what God expects of husbands is far greater than what he expects of wives. See, we get hung up in verse 22, wives submit to your husbands, but sometimes we completely miss the fact that what God is asking of husbands is far greater. He's not just asking for submission. He's asking you to give your life the way Christ gave his life. How did Christ give his life? He he was tortured and killed. I mean, that's a great sacrifice that God is putting on husbands about the wife. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man... Leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, there's a lot of controversy in this chapter that we could get into with our modern thinking, but we're not going to deal with that today. I want to take you to verse 21, because I really believe verse 21 is the most important and the foundational verse to make this entire passage of Scripture work. You know, oftentimes you hear pastors teach on marriage, they begin with verse 22, but 21 to me is the foundation of marriage. 21 is the key to the Christian life, to what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be a Spirit-filled believer. And let me explain what I mean. If you look in the ancient Greek at how Paul designed this, this book, this letter to the Ephesian church, personally, I believe chapter 5 begins around verse 18 when you study the Greek. And I believe chapter 5 ends around chapter 6 verse 10. Because you know, if you look at that in the Greek, it's all one thought. It's all one section. It's all one passage of Scripture. Verse 18, Paul starts talking about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what it means to be a Spirit-filled believer, what that means to be—you know, have the Holy Spirit absolutely generate a new life in you. And then Paul goes on, because verse 21, if you look at it in the Greek, is actually connected to the previous section, not, the, not, not, not what comes after. So it actually ties up to the previous section on being filled with the Holy Spirit, and then it outworks in the following three sections. So what Paul is doing is saying, listen, This is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be led by the Spirit, to walk in the Holy Spirit, to allow the Holy Spirit to change your desires and your pattern and your lifestyle. And the first outworking, the first fruit of being filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul says in verse 21, it gives you the ability to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then what Paul does is he says, now let me show you how that works in three different relationships in life. The first relationship is marriage, what we're studying today. The second relationship is the family, children and parents. And then the third relationship, uh, towards verse 10 in chapter 6, is the relationship in the workplace. How this plays out in the relationship in the workplace. So you understand, he's talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what this chapter is about. It's not about marriage, it's about being filled with the Holy Spirit. The outworking of being filled with the Holy Spirit is the power to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The way that works out in three different relationships are marriage, family, and workplace. That's the foundation. You've got to get that as we move on because when Paul gets into verse 22 in the whole section on marriage, he's assuming that these are spirit-filled people. He's assuming that they've already had the ability to be generated by the Holy Spirit to, to be able to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, he talks about this whole principle of being filled with the Holy Spirit and submission. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of, your, thinking of others as better than yourself. What is he saying? He's saying, put the needs of others in front of your needs. Put their preferences. Take care of your Christian brothers and sisters. Look after their well-being over your well-being. See, even though Paul goes on to write, wives submit to your husband, it doesn't negate the fact that he also said, submit to one another. And that mutual submission comes first because husbands and wives, yes, are husbands and wives, but they are also Christian brothers and sisters. Before she is your wife and before he is your husband, she is your Christian sister and Christian brother. And Paul throughout Scripture and Jesus throughout Scripture tells us how we're to treat our Christian brothers and sisters. Don't be selfish. Put their needs in front of our needs. So Paul is assuming if you don't get that, pushing the roles will actually aggravate your marriage even worse. See, if you try to get into verse 22 but you haven't settled verse 21 in your life, You haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to generate you this ability to submit to one another, the ability to put the needs of another person first, the ability to put their desires ahead of your desires and to put their preferences ahead of your preferences. If you try to get into verse 22, all it's going to do is aggravate your marriage. That's why he's saying the first step to a great marriage is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to do this without being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, we have a three-year-old son at home, and so we spend a lot of time with people with children, and the kids get together, and they play, and they have a great time. And there, there, there's something that I've learned about children, watching my son and watching his friends and seeing all the kids get together. I mean, it's, you know, you know children are born. They, you know, when you look at children, the ability to put the needs of somebody else ahead of their needs. The ability to put somebody's preferences over their preferences, to put their desires over their desires, to allow somebody else to go first in front of them. Uh, When you're around children, you learn very quickly that that is not instinctive. Anything but instinctive. I mean, the first word kids learn to say when they start playing with their friends is mine, and nobody teaches them how to say it. I mean, they just learn that. Why? Because by nature, we are selfish people. We are born selfish. That is our nature. And Paul is saying, if you are ever going to have an incredible marriage, a marriage that sings, a marriage that is absolutely incredible, you have to have this Holy Spirit generated ability inside of you to put the needs of somebody else first because it's not natural. It's not comfortable. It actually opposes a lot of our modern thinking to put the needs of somebody else ahead of our needs. And that brings me to the number one point of today's message as we begin this series. Self-centeredness is the biggest problem in every marriage. It is the biggest enemy. It is the biggest cancer. It is the root symptom of every problem you deal with in marriage. You go to the root, and it's self-centeredness. Putting yourself ahead of the other person. Putting your needs ahead of the other person. Even some people that struggle with addictions, what does it come down to? It comes down to self-centeredness. It comes down to putting that addiction, their needs, what their desire, their wants ahead of what's best for the greater good of the family. And so what happens in relationships is three things. As, as, as we begin to understand this and see this play out, three things happen in relationships, biblically, if you're a Christ follower. The first thing is you learn how to serve the other person with joy. You learn how to serve them joyfully. You learn how to, how to do it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit generates in you that ability. You're led by the Spirit. The Spirit is your helper. Gives you the ability to serve the other person joyfully. Or there are people who serve begrudgingly. They do it, but they don't want to do it. They do it, but they do it with a frown on their face. They do it with the ticking. They do it, you know, they, they make sure it's known, I'm doing this, but they're doing it as a martyr. They're doing it to gain the moral high ground in the marriage. And I am guilty of that. I have, I, I, as I studied this message this week and really dug into it, I had to really evaluate and examine my life. And I realized, how many times do I serve, but, I, but, but I'm doing it to try to get the moral high ground in the relationship? Look at me. I'm the martyr. I'm serving. I'm the great one. And I'm not doing it out of love. I'm not doing it joyfully. I'm not doing it because I'm being led by the Holy Spirit. I'm doing it to get the moral high ground in the relationship. And I see that so often. Or there's the third option that people do in marriage, and that's they put their own needs in front of the other. They, 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 they put their selfishness. They demand their needs to be met in that marriage. And So what we want to do as Christ followers, what we want to do as believers is settle the fact that being Holy Spirit-filled will give you the ability to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I love 1 Corinthians 13. Paul talks about this in regards to love. He says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous, boastful, or proud, or rude. It does not demand its own way. Think about that for a second. Love does not demand its own way. It puts the needs of others first. And this is absolutely impossible without the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you don't have the Holy Spirit generating an ability in you to put others first, it's it's practically impossible for human beings to do it because it so goes against our nature as who we are. It so goes against who we were born. When you study this in verse 21, the Greek word that Paul is actually using, the word submit is the word apotasso in the Greek. It was actually used in ancient Greek writing as a military term. That's the strength of this word. Paul's using a word that was, was used for soldiers submitting to their commanding officer. Why? Because if you've ever been in the military or around people in the military, you understand to go in the military, you've got to give up a lot of rights. You've got to give up a lot of preferences. You've got to give up a lot of desires. You don't always get to choose when you eat, where you eat, what you eat, when you go to sleep, what you wear. Why? You have to deny your own personal rights for the good of the whole. Because if you don't, you don't have a synchronized movement of a body of people to accomplish a task. So you have to submit your own needs. You've got to submit your own desires. You've got to submit your own preferences for the good of the mission, for the good of the whole, for the good of others. And that's the word Paul is using. It was a Greek military term. See, this gets into love economics. A lot of you understand financial economics. What is financial economics? Basically, if you make a deposit in your bank account, that gives you the ability to do what? Make a withdrawal. If you don't make a deposit, there's nothing to withdraw. You you can only withdraw what you've deposited in the bank. So if there's nothing in the bank, there's nothing to withdraw. In marriage, there's love economics. You can only withdraw love out of your bank and give to your spouse if there's been love deposited into your bank. If there's nothing deposited in your bank, you've got nothing to give to your spouse. Now, the problem in marriage is for most people, the only one making deposits is your spouse. And let me show you why that's dangerous. What happens when your spouse has a bad day? What happens the day your spouse doesn't have any love to deposit into your bank account? What are you going to do back? See, that's the problem with self-centeredness is it makes you blind. Self-centeredness brings you to a point where you can't see your self-centeredness. You can't see your selfishness, and you automatically assume their selfishness is worse than your selfishness. And so what we do is this cycle creates where, where they don't give, so we don't give. They don't do, so we don't do. If they would do this, we would do that. And it creates this cycle in marriage that can only be broke with the Holy Spirit giving you the ability to stop for a second and realize... My love doesn't come from my spouse. My love comes from the Lord. And if I allow the Holy Spirit to fill me, what does that mean? If I allow the Holy Spirit to deposit his love into my love bank, then I can make withdrawals and give to my life, wife regardless of what kind of day she's having. That's the power of being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're depending on your wife to be the only person or depending on your husband to be the only person depositing love into your bank account, you're going to be in trouble you got to have something beyond your spouse to be depositing love inside of you, and that's why Paul is saying you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit because this is beyond our ability. This is impossible for human beings, but what is impossible for us is possible for God. So you got to allow the Holy Spirit to deposit love in you so that you can make withdrawals. And why are so many people self-centered? Well, you know, there is the form of self-centeredness that is arrogant, but there's a lot of people self-centered simply because they've been wounded in life. And I'm not talking about serious abuse. There's, there's tragic abuse that we read about. But I'm talking about basic woundedness that most of us go through. Being bullied at school. Being picked on. A teacher saying something not so nice. A parent you know, telling you you're never going to make it. Or a mom saying you're not pretty. All of us go through that basic woundedness in life. And what happens is that develops a self-centeredness inside of us. Now, if you've ever been around somebody that's been wounded or gone through any form of trauma, you realize really quick how self-absorbed they are. They can't see beyond their own pain. They can't see beyond their own hurt. They can't see beyond their own problems to, to, to be able to submit themselves to another out of reverence for Christ. Or if they do, they do it in a codependent way where it's really for their own needs. They'll serve somebody else, but it's in codependence for their own needs. That's why it takes the Holy Spirit to, and there's two ways to view this. You know, when you're dealing with somebody that's wounded, there's two ways. There's a secular view, and the secular view basically says all people are created good. So if somebody's wounded, it's because they were abused or it's because they've been through trauma or life circumstance made them that way. Or there's the Christian point of view. Which says that, yes, the the abuse, the trauma, the the circumstance in life may have aggravated the self-centeredness, may have inflared the self-centeredness, may have inflamed it and made it worse, but the self-centeredness was prior to the abuse. So the way you treat it is differently. In the secular world, there's a lot of modern thought and philosophy that says if somebody's wounded, you got to get them to see their potential. you got to get them to see how great they are. you got to get them, you got to build their confidence and build their self-esteem. But the problem is, if the root is self-centeredness, all that focus on self is not going to bring them to a place of healing. See, the Christian approach is, yes, you need to treat them with kid gloves. You, you need to be gentle with them, but at the same time, you have to challenge the self-centeredness. Because unless you challenge the self-centeredness, the root of who they are, they're never going to find healing and they're never going to find freedom. Uh, First Corinthians says it like this, or excuse me, second Corinthians chapter five, verse 15, the Bible says, he died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. See, if you receive his new life, you'll no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for the dead. Now, why is this such a problem in marriage? Because in the Western world, see, in ancient civilization, oftentimes you didn't get to choose who you married. You were given your wife. You were given your husband. It was all prearranged. So in love, in ancient civilization, marriages was a choice, not a feeling. Today we get married based off the feeling of love and not the choice of love. Back then, you didn't get to choose who you married, but you did choose to love them. Today, you get married out of feeling, or because you like them, or because you're attracted to them, and there's there's different different versions of why you get married. And the problem with this is oftentimes, as soon as you get married, three things begin to take place. Number one, you begin to see this, uh, you begin to see how incredibly selfish this absolutely wonderful person is. The second thing that begins to take place in marriage is they begin to see how incredibly selfish... You are, and begin pointing it out to you. And then the third thing that happens is you say, yeah, you know, that, that's true. But you conclude the fact that their selfishness is far more serious than your selfishness is. And that's normally the cycle of what marriage happens. Then what happens is we begin to negotiate, we begin to bargain with each other, and there's this emotional distance and this, this decay that begins to take place in marriage and this cancer that begins to take place and oftentimes destroys the marriage. You begin to bargain and say, okay, listen, if you don't bother me about that, I won't bother you about this. And if you don't bother me about that, then I won't bother you about that. And if you don't bug me about this, I won't bug you about that. And you just develop this marriage with this emotional distance and you get 40 years down the road and, you know, when they kiss on the anniversary photo, it's forced. There's, there's no love. There's no joy. There's no passion left. They just learn how to negotiate enough to get by in marriage. And that wasn't God's intention. See, God's intention was marriage to, 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 to develop you in the fullness by challenging who you are. But, but by really focusing in on your selfishness with the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to change your lifestyle, begin to change who you are. And see, that, so the views of dealing with marriage are one, the secular view, you can decide that my woundedness is more fundamental than my self centeredness. And so I need to get this other person to understand what I've been through and and be sympathetic to what I've been through and and, and help me deal with it and and help me see how great I am. The problem is they oftentimes don't because they're feeling the same way about you. They're trying to get you to see their pain. Or you can view marriage from the Christian point of view, which basically says, I'm going to look at my own self-centeredness as the main problem of this marriage. And I'm going to begin to act upon the selfishness that is reported to me regardless of what my spouse does. Regardless of if I ever see a change in her a change in him. Regardless if they ever want to deal with theirs or deal with theirs. I'm going to look at my own selfishness. I'm going to look at my own self-centeredness. I'm going to look at me as the main problem of this marriage. And the beauty is when you get two people doing that, the possibilities are endless for a marriage. When you get two people who will view their own selfishness as the biggest problem in the marriage, you get two people looking at it that way. Two people who begin to put the other person's needs in front of their needs. Two people who say, your preference ahead of my preference. Your needs ahead of my needs. See, when that happens, the possibility... And then there's a third option. One of you does it, one of you doesn't. And normally what happens in a situation like that, if one person will... Step up and say, okay, I'm going to look at my selfishness, my self-centeredness is the biggest problem of this marriage. If one person does it, over time, what often happens is it softens the heart of the other. And they begin to be willing to make changes. They begin to be willing to acknowledge. They see you making changes. They see you dealing with stuff. So what happens is they begin to be willing to deal with their own issues in their own areas. Because by you acting, you're almost giving them permission to deal with themselves. And that's the beauty, is when two people will take their self-centeredness as the biggest issue in their marriage. Learn how to truly submit to one another, and then the last part of that verse, out of reverence for Christ. In the actual Greek, what it's really saying there is for fear of God. And I understand why a lot of modern translators use the word reverence as opposed to fear, because the word fear in our modern world gives us some false perceptions of what the word is actually trying to say. See, a lot of times we hear the word fear Fear in modern English, we, 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 we think of frightened, afraid, abusive. It's a very negative term. But when fear is used in the Bible, it wasn't a negative term at all. It wasn't be afraid of God because he's going to strike you down or be afraid of God because if you mess up, God's going to whack you over the head. When the Bible uses the word fear, it means to be overwhelmed in awe of who God is, to be completely overtaken by the Spirit of God. Actually, fear of God and spirit-filled are the same thing. When you really study it out, being spirit-filled and to have the fear of God are the same thing because fear of God is just being overwhelmed by God, being overtaken by God, allowing God's love to so fill and consume you, being filled with God's Spirit so that you have love to give. You have emotional wealth that doesn't require another human being. I've got love being deposited into my love bank by the God of the universe. That's what 1 John says. We love because he first loved us. You don't have the ability to love without God's spirit. You can't love your children, you can't love your wife, you can't love other people unless you've been given emotional wealth. And if you allow God to deposit so much love inside of you, then it becomes very easy to forgive. It becomes very easy to put others first because you're doing it out of your riches. You've been given so much love and so much of this incredible beauty by God, you can be very generous with it because you have so much that you don't need it all. People who have a very easy time forgiven are people who have a very easy time letting God love them because they've received so much love from God that it's very easy to give it away because they have so much left over. It it doesn't cost them to give it away because they have so much in the bank account. It's easy. That's why your spouse can't be the only person depositing love into your bank you got to have a different source. you got to have an unlimited supply of love if you're going to get through marriage. And that's why Paul starts Ephesians 5 by saying, this is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't do this marriage thing without being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's beyond your ability. It's not five steps to do that or three steps on how to do this. you got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you're filled, then the Spirit generates in you this ability to submit to one another out of fear of God. And if you don't make this the foundation of this series, the rest of it won't make sense. See, if you try to push the roles in marriage without building the foundation of submission, without building this this Holy Spirit-generated ability to to confront and deal with your self-centeredness, if you try to push the roles, you're going to aggravate your marriage. Because only after you settle the fact that your self-centeredness is the worst problem in your marriage. And one of the dangers of a message like this is, as I know it, I see it in people's faces. You're sitting there thinking, I'm so glad my husband's here in this. I'm so glad my wife's here in this right now. And let me just stop you for a minute. If you had that thought or feeling, take this as a rebuke from the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's dealing with you right now. Holy Spirit, if you had that thought or feeling during this service... You need to step back for a second and realize, uh-oh, I've been blinded to my own self-centeredness. If I had that thought, if I had that feeling, it must be the Holy Spirit's working on me and Satan's trying to blind me, trying to put the attention on somebody else, but it's really me that needs to deal with that self-centeredness. There, there's issues that I'm struggling with, and so I encourage you married couples to, to you know, and everyone, because again, this applies in the workplace, this applies in family relationships. Paul said this, this applies in every human relationship you have. This, this applies to relationship with your boss, the relationship with your employees, the relationship with your neighbors, the relationship with your children, the relationship with your parents. This wasn't just confined to marriage. Paul says being filled with the Holy Spirit, submission to Christ, works out in all areas of human relationship. So you, you can leave here knowing that this message did apply to you even if you're single. Because it's about being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the starting point. That's step one. Is letting the Holy Spirit generate in you an ability to put the needs of others first. To deal with your own self-centeredness. That has to be the foundation to this marriage series. If you don't get that, the rest of it's not really going to matter a whole lot. Because this is the starting point. This is step one. This is the foundation. Mutual submission. Submit to one another out of fear of God by being filled with the Spirit. See, He didn't ask you to do something He's not going to give you the ability to do. But you've got to understand, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it with willpower. You can't do it with mind power. You can't do it through your own energy. You can only do this if the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to do it. So bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. Some of you today need the Holy Spirit to fill you with the ability to generate inside of you an ability to put the needs of others first. Put the needs of your children first, put the needs of your spouse first, put the needs of your parents, put the needs of your coworkers, the needs of your boss, the needs of your employees first. You need the Holy Spirit to generate in you an ability to put other people first. And that's the foundation for a great marriage. That's the foundation for a great family. Self-centeredness is a cancer that will destroy any human relationship. It'll destroy a family. So I challenge you, followers of Christ, to allow the Holy Spirit to generate in you this ability to submit to one another for fear of God. Not being afraid that God's going to punish you, but for fear of God of his just being overwhelmed by his awesome love, overwhelmed by his awesome power, giving you the ability to do this. And then for some of you, you need to take step one, which is putting God first in your life. You've never made a decision to live for God or you've never made a decision to make God number one in your life. You've allowed God to be a part of your life. You know, I I have God on Sunday. Or I have God, you know, a couple times a week, but you've never allowed God to be number one in your life, to be the most important thing in your life. God is not an accessory. He's all or nothing. And for some of you, you need to make a decision today to say, I will put God first in my life. I'll make Him number one. I'll make Him the most important part of my life. And if that's you today, you need to make that decision to put God first. Would you raise up your hand quickly so I can pray for you? Just raise your hand up. Thank you. 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 This is how you do it. Very simple. I'm going to lead you in a very simple prayer of making God number one in your life. The first part of the prayer is you invite him into your life. You just say, God, I invite you to take first place in my life. I invite you to be number one in my life. You had traded your son for me to give me this opportunity. So I'm going to receive the gift of your son and invite you to be number one in my life. So right now in your own words, in your own way, To yourself, invite God to be number one in your life. Second part of that prayer is you ask God to forgive you. You've got to understand every one of us have failed. Every one of us has made mistakes. Every one of us has gone through problems and done bad things. Every one of us needs God's grace. Every single one of us. So right now, just say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. And then the last part of that prayer is you simply say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for giving your son. Thank you for giving the Holy Spirit that generates the ability in me to have a great marriage. Thank you for giving me new life. Just say thank you. There's so much to be thankful for. So just take a moment right now and just say thank you to God. that's it that's how you're made right with god the bible said you believe in your heart you confess with your mouth you shall be saved